Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Peter Schiff Show. I hadn't actually planned on recording a podcast today, but given the record point drop in the Dow Jones today, I thought I would disappoint some of my listeners if I didn't at least post something and record some of my thoughts on today's uh, record breaking decline. Although, in percentage terms, Today's 4.4% drop in the Dow was not a record, although I think you have to go back to the summer, I think it was August of 2011, to get a percentage decline this big. The point drop was just under 1,200 points, 1,190.95 points on the Dow. And it was a very volatile day, too. It didn't just go straight down. We were down about 900 points, I think, in maybe the first hour, if not the first couple hours. And then the market rallied, and we were down, I think, about 200 at the highs, maybe a little less. I think that transports actually went positive a little bit. I'm not sure about all of the other index. I didn't watch them all, but I know they tried to make a comeback. In fact, I was watching on CNBC when the Dow was around down 200, and Rick Santelli was like, oh, I think this is going to close positive. You know, he's a nice guy, but he's, uh, he's, he's drunk too much of the Trump Kool-Aid, so he's always looking at stuff from a very optimistic perspective because Trump is president. But he was like, you know, I think we're going to close positive today. I think this is the bottom. And as soon as he said that, I was like, you know what? We're probably going to get slammed into the close because this is what bear markets do. They fall a slope of hope. They try to give people confidence that maybe we're coming near the end of the decline. And again, what is fooling a lot of people uh, as far as keeping them complacent is that everything is being blamed on the coronavirus. And people are saying, look, you know, it's not going to be that bad. I mean, you know, it's like the flu. I mean, remember when, you know, we had SARS. I mean, that started off. People were worried about that. And they, you know, they got that under control. I mean, uh, you know, there were some cancellations of uh, cruises and flights. And, you know, there was some impact uh, on the economy initially when that happened. Now, the reaction in the market wasn't as nearly as violent 
as what we're having now. And the reason is the U.S. economy and the U.S. markets are really on far less solid footing now. Not that the footing was so solid back then in 03. I think that's when SARS happened. We were just coming out of recession, but the markets were at a much better valuation. The Fed had just slashed interest rates to, you know, kind of stimulate the economy. But, you know, we were just starting the recovery. This is long in a uh, expansion uh, that has required records amounts of monetary and fiscal stimulus to produce. And the stock market, apart from being the most overvalued in U.S. history, you have a market that was priced for perfection. In fact, I think it was priced for something more than perfection, but at a minimum, it was priced for perfection. Well, clearly, we don't have perfection. Right. Whatever happens with the coronavirus, the economy is hardly perfect now that we have to deal with it and that we have to deal uh, with uh, the psychology around it. And the fact that economic activity may be curtailed just as people hunker down and prepare for the coronavirus. I mean, if the economy itself were healthy, right, if it were uh, on a solid foundation, this wouldn't be you know, rocking it. It would not be getting this sick from this virus. It's precisely because, you know, we're living in this bubble. As I said, you know, it doesn't matter about the size of the pin. What matters about the size of the bubble, the tiniest pin could prick the biggest bubble. But once you prick it, the air is coming out. And that is what's happening. You know, this again, this, this is just another straw to break the market's back. And it is the final one. Right. But once the back is broken, right, the, the market's going to collapse. It doesn't really matter, I think, at this point what happens with the coronavirus. I mean, I hope they get it contained, you know, from a human perspective. But I really think from a market and economic perspective, the damage is done. Right. The back is broken. The thing is going to collapse. The air is coming out of this bubble. But the fact that so many people just don't get it. Right. They're like, well, I mean, this is an overreaction. Why would the market be down so much? based on so little, because it was priced for perfection, and now perfection has to be priced out of the market, and we haven't even finished doing that, because there's a lot of bad things uh, that the market hasn't even begun to price in, again, one of them being the prospects of Bernie Sanders becoming the next president. Now, I'm actually hearing a few more people uh, raising the issue. I mean, Jeff Gunlock has been talking about it for a while, but now I'm seeing a little bit more mainstream coverage of, yeah, you know, maybe the markets are a little worried about Sanders. Now, the odds of Sanders winning, if you look at least at uh, predicted, he's come down a bit and Biden is coming up, but he's still the overwhelming favorite. And I think everything that is happening right now plays into the Sanders narrative. And as far as the general election is concerned, here is a problem, right? And this is a problem that even Donald Trump acknowledged at his press conference yesterday, which I'm going to get to in a minute. The weaker the stock market goes, right, the more likely it is that Sanders will win because one of uh, Trump's main bragging points about the success of his presidency is the stock market. He has measured uh, the success of his presidency by the stock market. And I said from the beginning, you live by the stock market, you die by the stock market. So he came credit uh, for all the gains. He's going to have to accept responsibility for the losses. Now, of course, he's going to blame them on the virus. But again, if we had a stable market, uh, it could withstand 
the virus. The fact that it was anything but stable, that it was a bubble and priced for perfection. Uh, So the fact that he presided over a bubble is not the same thing as a genuine bull market based on sound fundamentals. We didn't have that. And so if the illusion is popped before the election, well, he may lose, right? And here's the irony of this self-perpetuating spiral. So the more the market goes down, the more people are worried that Sanders will be the next president. And if they're concerned about that, they're rightly selling stocks. So as they become more concerned that Sanders is gonna win, they sell stocks. The stock market is now lower, which even raises higher the possibility that Sanders does win, which means more stocks get sold. And as stocks go lower and lower, the probability of a Sanders victory gets higher and higher. And so it just gets more and more bearish for stocks. And then you're getting into the spiral that lands um, Sanders in the White House. So this is a, a real threat. And again, it's not just the market coming down. It is a recession getting started. Right, everybody was pretty sure that we were gonna make it to the election without a recession. That seems kind of unlikely at this point. It seems that a recession is coming no matter how much the Fed uh, tries to prevent it. You know, the markets are now pricing in, I think, three rate cuts already between now and the end of the year. Now, again, I mean, that might not even be enough. I mean, we're going down to zero. But remember, I said that from the beginning. Once the Fed started cutting rates, they were going to zero. I mean, that was just a foregone conclusion. If it wasn't the coronavirus, it would have been something else because the, the, the bubble is pricked. They have to take rates all the way back down if they want to try to delay the day of reckoning, but they're not going to cancel the day of reckoning. All that's going to happen is we're going to have a lot more to reckon with because of how many years they've already kicked the can down the road. Of course, they'll try to kick it down for a few more if they could succeed. It may only be a matter of months Uh, But even during those months of can kicking, the problems are going to get worse. But I touched on this topic uh, in yesterday's podcast, but I want to expand on it a little bit, is how ill-prepared the economy is for this next recession and why this is so scary. The prospects of it are so frightening to anybody who understands it. See, we've had the longest recovery, the longest expansion in history. Now, of course, it's required the most amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus in history, uh, but they were able to produce it. But normally during an expansion, consumers pay down their debt, right? They, 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 they go into debt during the recession. And then when times are good, they make more money. They pay off their debts. They, they fix up their balance sheets. The same thing with the government. The government typically runs these big deficits during a recession. And then when you have an expansion, Uh, the deficits come down. I mean, they generally don't run surpluses, but at least the deficits shrink as the government no longer has to spend as much on automatic safety, you know, nets and stimulus. And all of a sudden the government gets more tax revenue from increased economic activity. So a genuine economic expansion, a real boom, uh, you know, fills the, the treasury's coffers. So now when the next downturn comes, they're in a better position uh, to, to handle an increase in the deficit. And of course, if consumers, you know, have built up their savings and you go into a recession, they have some money in reserve. They're okay. But this expansion has been different in that everybody levered up even more. So the government has a lot more debt now. The budget deficits are bigger now than during the depths of the recession. That's not supposed to happen. Consumers have more debt now than they've ever had because it's not a real recovery, it's been a bubble. So we have more credit card debt, more auto debt, more student loans. And so everybody uh, is having to deal with all this debt, 
But what happens if we get the slowdown that we're talking about, then businesses aren't gonna have the revenue to service their debt. What if all of a sudden the layoffs really pick up? You know, we could be seeing a big spike in the unemployment rate in the next several months as a lot of companies hunker down and realize that they have to reduce their overhead, including their payroll uh, during this slowdown. So now a lot of people are unemployed. Well, how are those people going to pay their mortgage? How are they going to make their credit card payments, their auto loans, right? Student loans, whatever. I mean, people need those paychecks because they don't have anything saved for a rainy day. And now all of a sudden it pours and this is the problem. It's all the debt. It's all the leverage that's in the system. Now they have to keep everything going. And the minute the music stops, right, everything comes imploding. That's what so few people seem to understand, that it just takes a little downturn. When you have this much debt, when your consumers are this levered, and, and imagine too, what about the companies uh, that are supposed to be paid, right? All of a sudden, you're a bondholder and the guy you loan money to can't make the payments because he doesn't have a paycheck anymore or if he's a business and he's not getting the revenue because if your sales go down and your revenue go down, you still have to pay your creditors. You still have to make those interest payments. And what happens when they don't come and there's a default and then there's an implosion right? And everything, the bond market, the stock market, it's all priced for perfection. And we're as far as you can get from perfection. You know, some of the interesting movements that happened in the markets today is the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar got hammered pretty well today. I mean, the dollar index was down about 60 basis points. There was no flight to safety in the U.S. dollar. Uh, the currencies that did the best, the Swiss franc, the Japanese yen, the euro starting to come back. So people are getting out of dollars. This is the opposite of what was happening, let's say, in the collapse in 2008 when people were piling into dollars as they were selling stocks. This could be the beginning of a much bigger trend uh, where the dollar really starts to fall. Now, bond yields made new lows again today, but they closed well off uh, their highs, at least bond prices did, and yields were only slightly down on the day. We got all the way down to 1.743 on the 10-year, and we closed at 1.784. On the 30-year, that got down to 1.743, and we closed at 1.784, so well off the lows. So even though the stock market rolled over and puked uh, into the close, you did not see a flight to treasuries at that point. Uh, so maybe we're seeing some type of top. We'll see. I mean, it's it's hard to, to call the top in this crazy market. But at some point, the bond market's going to start to fall with the dollar. And that's when the problems are going to kick into a whole new gear for the U.S. In fact, maybe that'll start when the Fed comes to the rescue with the next rate cut. Now, gold today uh, was... It gapped up. I mean, it was up like 10 to $20 early on. And then when the, the stock market rallied back to where the Dow was only down 200, gold lost most of its gains. And then when the market rolled over at the end of the day, gold really didn't go back up to the highs. It kind of stayed where it was. And so gold is still trading around 1640 uh, an ounce. Gold stocks got absolutely obliterated today. They were down more than the, the NASDAQ even. The GDX was down 5.7%. The juniors down 6.9%. And there, there are many gold stocks that I saw that were down 8 to 10%. Some of them were down more. And a lot of these stocks were down yesterday. Now, you might be thinking, why are the gold stocks getting cream? Gold's not even going down. The gold chart looks perfect. I mean, first of all, I think a lot of the traders are worried that the gold price is going to sell off, which is, you know, that's a perfect bull market. You're climbing a wall of worry. And I think that sell-off on Monday 
where you know we had that big $40 drop late in the day. Somebody came in and dumped a bunch of gold. I think that kind of scared uh, people and they're afraid to come into the market because they're worried about another big seller coming in and, and monkey hammering the market down. Uh, but also maybe what happened is some people came into the market uh, on Monday and they bought the open or maybe some traders took out some leverage bets on gold stocks and then these are short, short term trades and then all of a sudden they want out or maybe they got a margin call who knows but the one thing i know is none of our clients are on margin we don't trade on margin so we own our stocks fully paid for we're not in options so we are not going to be shaken out of our positions if you get a bunch of noise in the market because I think we are setting up for an explosive move up in gold stocks. I think we're shaking out a lot of the weaker hands who don't really get it, who don't understand the big picture behind what's happening. I just think this is, you know, manna from heaven as far as my clients are concerned. Anybody uh, who didn't have enough gold stocks coming into this, you've got a opportunity to buy into this weakness. I don't know how much longer it's going to last. Maybe this is the end of it. I don't know. Uh, you know, but just start buying because they are, I think they're giving these stocks away. People should be selling uh, their normal stocks, their non-gold U.S. stocks because they're way overpriced and headed lower, uh, but they should be buying these gold stocks because I think we are in front of a major, major gold bull market, especially if the U.S. dollar starts to fall because that's been the one thing that's been missing is the gold market has been going up despite a strong dollar. That's been a powerful headwind for gold, but when that becomes a tailwind, look out. Now, I also want to talk about the president's press conference that he gave last night about the uh, coronavirus. And I actually think that if you weren't worried about the coronavirus and then you saw this press conference, you're now worried. I mean, it has probably the opposite effect uh, that was intended, which is to instill calm and probably incited panic. The fact that we have this whole task force, right, the president has to address the nation. We have to have this task force headed by Mike Pence. Uh, to kind of deal with this problem. And even though he tried to downplay the risks, I think the reaction is, wait a minute, you're telling us not to worry, but you're doing all this stuff. Maybe we should worry, right? And, and, and that's probably what's happening. But I found out today that Pence decided to add uh, Mnuchin and Kudlow to the coronavirus task force. Now, I mean, this is the Treasury Secretary and his economic advisor. What the hell do they know about the coronavirus? It seems to me that this task force is another plunge protection team, right? I mean, their, their real uh, goal here is not to cure the coronavirus, but to pump up the stock market. I mean, why else would he have Kudlow and Mnuchin there? I mean, obviously, you know, Trump is very, very worried. He's more worried about what's happening uh, in the market and of course, what that might mean for an economy that's based on the perception of a big stock market. And, you know, we're dropping at a rate. I mean, this is really not precedented how fast we're going down. I mean, I think we're down, I don't know, what is it, 13% or something this week? I mean, the markets are getting killed. The transports are almost now all the way into bear market territory. I think now it's 15% or something, but we're almost down to the lows from December of 2018, which is where the Fed came to the rescue, you know, riding in like the cavalry, cutting rates. Uh, we're almost back down there on the transports and probably some of these other indexes aren't too far behind unless you get some kind of emergency rate cut coming in. But the danger, the danger for the Fed, if they come in and cut rates to save the market, what if the market goes down and makes new lows, right? Then they're out of bullets. What if they shoot their load and then it doesn't work, right? It's kind of like, you know, 
you fire you fire a, a gun uh, at Superman and, 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 and the bullets bounce off and then you're, you're in a lot of trouble once you realize that that gun doesn't work. So what happens if, uh, you know, the Fed cuts rates and maybe you get a little rally in the market and then it, it, it rolls over and goes lower? Now what do you do? So it's kind of scary if you use your ammo and then it's proven ineffective. At least now they can hold the specter of coming to the rescue, you know, out there. And so people expect the Fed to rescue the markets. And so they don't actually have to do it. But at some point, the markets are actually pushing the Fed. The markets are like, you know, drug addicts. They want drugs. They want drugs. They want the Fed to come in. And I actually think that we're going to be going down until the addicts in the market get the fix that they want from the Fed. The problem is it might not work. It might not be enough. And that is the big risk. And that's why you really got to be loading up on these gold stocks. And of course, gold itself continues uh, to uh, grind higher, climbing this wall of worry. But also at that press conference, there are some other interesting uh, aspects of the press conference. One is that Donald Trump actually acknowledged what I've been saying about Bernie Sanders, right? He said, you know, I think I'm going to win. I think we're going to win this thing. But you know what? If Bernie Sanders is on the ballot, I mean, his name is up there. It's possible that he wins, right? Anything is possible in an election, which is true. Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong probably will. And, you know, I can't think of anything more wrong than electing Bernie Sanders. But Trump admits if his name is on the ballot, people could vote for him. He could win. After all, no one expected Trump to win, and he did. Nobody expects Sanders to win, and he might. And Trump said, look, you know, the markets are going to get killed if Sanders wins. Now, what he said is that if he wins, right, if he gets reelected, he said the market is going to rally the likes of which the world has never seen. Now, the only way we're going to get a big rally if Trump wins is if the markets are pricing in a Sanders win and Trump actually surprises the markets by winning. Then we could get a big rally. But I think that big rally could happen from a much, much lower level than the one we're at right now. And again, this, this bubble has popped. The air is coming out. We're headed for a massive recession, whether Trump gets reelected or not. I just think it'll be a lot worse uh, if Sanders is at the helm uh, rather, than, rather than Trump. But another <laughs> interesting part about this press conference, again, that was on the coronavirus, he started talking about negative interest rates and how great they are. And he specifically mentioned Germany and said, hey, things are great in Germany because they're borrowing and they're getting negative interest rates. They're getting paid to borrow. And this is great. And we're the greatest country in the world. We should have the lowest interest rates in the world. And the Fed is asleep at the switch. He was criticizing the Fed. He was criticizing Powell for not bringing interest rates into negative territory. Now, I mean, that is a a asinine monetary policy. It's completely reckless to say we want negative rates. Now, Long-term yields, the 10-year yield and the 30-year yield right now are lower than they were at any point that Obama was president. So you have Trump saying, hey, you know, I would be doing so much better if I had the low interest rates that Obama did. You've got lower interest rates than Obama. The 10-year is lower than what Obama had. The 30-year is lower. Now, they're not negative, but they're lower. Now, the short-term rates are a little bit higher than they were when Obama was president. Not for long. They're going back down to zero. But for the Fed to try to bring rates negative would require a massive amount of monetary stimulus, much more than what the president criticized the Fed for doing 
when Obama was president, but now he wants them to do much more of what he said that they shouldn't do. And the reason that he said that we should elect him is because he was going to preside over a real economy. He was going to make America great again. He didn't promise to make the bubble bigger again, but that's what he wants. And he's calling out the Fed for not delivering exactly that. But in addition to bashing the Fed, he bashed the dollar, right? I mean, he went out and said the dollar's too strong. The dollar has to come down, which I think the dollar is going to come down, but it's not going to produce the effect that Trump wants. I mean, we have a weak dollar policy, right? We don't have a strong dollar policy. Uh, the dollar has been strong for the wrong reasons. And once it starts to fall, it's never going to stop. And maybe there may be some people that think that's a relief, but it's going to be short-lived relief uh, because it's going to be very painful. The dollar is going to come down and that's going to make U.S. assets far less attractive. It's going to incite all sorts of selling of U.S. stocks and bonds from all around the world. And so it's actually going to make the problems worse. It's not going to solve anything. Now, speaking about problems, I kind of got myself a PR problem here in Puerto Rico. You know, some of you might have watch the YouTube video that I put up. A guy interviewed me over at my house regarding a investor conference that I was going to be participating in. I was on a panel. Uh, well, I was on that panel uh, two days ago is when I was there in San Juan. And these were investors, people that had been gathered to Puerto Rico to consider moving here, right? And so I was on a panel with other people who have moved to Puerto Rico and to just talk about our experience and what we like and what we don't like about living here. But the goal is to get more people to move to Puerto Rico, right? And they're gonna come and they're gonna bring capital, they're gonna bring businesses, they're gonna hire people. All the people who are coming here are going to add value to the local economy. They're gonna pay a lot of taxes, even though they're getting tax incentives, they're still gonna pay a lot of taxes that the Puerto Rican government is not currently collecting. They're gonna create jobs for people that are here, which will also generate tax revenue. They're gonna buy houses, they're gonna remodel houses, they're gonna have all sorts of economic activity that is going to directly result from people coming. And I went there, I didn't get paid to go there, right? I didn't have any financial incentive to go there. I just went to help Puerto Rico. I want this island to succeed. This is my home now. I live here and I want to encourage more people to come. So I don't, I just go down there on my own dime, right? And they didn't even send a car. I drove into San Juan and I was on this panel. Anyway, I didn't realize there was a reporter in there. And uh, the next day, a, a, a news story comes out and it basically features me. There's a big picture of me. Uh, you know, you can find it on the internet if you look for it. And it's all in Spanish. So you have to, you know, have it translated. But the article itself, you know, wasn't that bad. I mean, it wasn't negative, wasn't positive, but it focused on a couple of points that I made in particular, because there are a lot of things that were said there. But what they focused on was my personal opposition to statehood. You know, and I made the point there that there is a big movement for statehood and there have been a lot of problems in Puerto Rico and the politicians who don't want to accept responsibility for creating those problems want to kind of scapegoat it and say, well, the reason that we have all this poverty and all this debt in Puerto Rico is because we're not a state, right? So if we were only a state, 
then we could solve the problems. And that's a way to kind of take the heat off themselves to actually solve the problems because they can just dangle the possibility of statehood out there. Like, look, don't expect us to solve the problems. We can't do anything. We're, we're second-class citizens. We don't really have our rights. And so we have to become a state. And that's the reason the economy is a mess because we're not a state and it's not our fault. It's, you know, it's because we're not a state. And so elect me and I'm going to pursue statehood, which is really a pipe dream. I mean, we're not going to become a state but the idea that becoming a state is somehow a panacea is complete nonsense. So the point I made is that the best thing that Puerto Rico has going for it is the fact that it's not a state, that it's a territory, right? Because we have all the benefits of living in a state without any of the negatives. I mean, this is the ideal situation that Puerto Rico needs to exploit, not give up. I mean, it's unfortunate that they didn't think of these tax incentives a long time ago or in Puerto Rico wouldn't be in the trouble. But since they do have them and people are coming, and by the way, the tax incentives, right? There's a 4% tax if you set up a business for export services. Those tax breaks are available to everybody. People that were born and lived their whole lives in Puerto Rico can start a business in export services and just pay a 4% tax. I mean, what a massive competitive advantage that is over everybody who's working in the States. You can compete head to head with startups in every state that have to deal with not only their state tax, but the federal income tax. And you could start in Puerto Rico and take them on with just a 4% total tax. I mean, the, the, the opportunities are incredible in Puerto Rico. But anyway, because this article focused on the fact that I said Puerto Rico shouldn't be a state, that that would be a step down. I mean, if we became a state, right, all of a sudden the IRS would come here. Right. They would descend on the island. I, you know, if you think earthquakes and hurricanes are bad, where do you see the IRS? I mean, we don't have to pay federal income taxes. Right. We, so that that saves us a fortune. And yes, we don't have congressmen. But why do you have congressmen? Congressmen are there to try to get some of the money back that you send to Washington. Well, we don't send any. So we don't have to try to beg to get some of it back. So we're better off not having congressmen, not having senators. I think some of the people in government, they're hoping to be a state because they want to be the first senator. They want to go to they want to go party it up in, in, in D.C. But again, it's more of a scapegoat because, hey, as long as we're a state, as long as we're not a state, don't expect us to ever solve these problems. Right. So it's a way for them to, you know, to get off the hook. And, and, and so they don't have to be held responsible for the problems they've created. But so I pointed this out. And so then you have this guy, Pedro uh, Pirilusi. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing the guy's name right, but he is a pretty big politician here. He was actually governor for about a week. You know, the last guy uh, had to resign. There was a big controversy. And so this guy took his place. But then the court said, no, 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 that's not legal. And so he had to step down uh, for the governor that we have now. And so she 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 took his place. But he wants to get back there. He wants to get back to that uh, governor's mansion. So he's, you know, one of the candidates now. And he's uh, the party of, uh, of statehood. So he's really big on statehood. So he reads this article, right, where they quote me saying that statehood would be a mistake and it's, you know, we're better off staying here. And so he, uh, he, he puts out this tweet and he attaches part of the article. And this is what the guy says. This, I'm going to read his tweet. And you can, I, I have this because I've retweeted it on my Twitter account. He said, it is inconceivable that someone who lived the American dream successfully wants to deny the rights and opportunities to their fellow citizens, particularly those who have received him in this homeland with hospitality. So in other words, he's saying that I'm this greedy guy and I live the American dream, but I want to deny 
that opportunity to everybody else in, in Puerto Rico. I mean, first of all, I was in, I was living in a state and I voluntarily moved out of a state to come to Puerto Rico, right? I didn't give up any of my rights because I moved to Puerto Rico. No, I gained new freedoms and new opportunity. The American dream is more alive today in Puerto Rico than in any of the 50 states. And the reason that I don't want Puerto Rico to become a state is I don't want that dream to die. I want this island to prosper because this is my home. It's not just a selfish reason because yes, if we became a state, then I would have to start paying the federal income tax again. But so would every other person on this island. You know, and so it's not just that I don't want to pay. I don't want anybody else to have to pay. Now, yes, there are a lot of people that don't earn that much money. But what about all the employers? What about all the small businessmen? They would die if they had to pay the federal income tax on top of a 35 percent uh, local income tax on top of an 11 percent sales tax. I mean, everybody would go out of business. This state would be a welfare state. It would be a complete disaster if it became a state. So what we need to do is not try to put ourselves in the same predicament that the other 50 states are in that would gladly trade places with us in a heartbeat if they even had the opportunity, but let's embrace the territorial status we have. We have all the constitutional rights that people have who live in the mainland, except we don't have to pay the federal income tax. I mean, how much better can that get? And we are the one haven in the world. If Americans move anywhere else in the world other than Puerto Rico, they still have to pay the income tax. But if they move here, they don't. Every business, every entrepreneur has a leg up. And it's not just the businessmen, it's the people they hire. There are more employment opportunities uh, for people here. You know, if I was just starting out, this guy made it out like, hey, I already, I, I got rich, I lived the American dream, right? And now I wanna you know, deny that to other people. If I was still in my early 20s, if I was just starting out today and I lived in the United States, I would hop on a plane and come down to Puerto Rico because this is where the opportunity is uh, precisely because we're not a state, right? And, and this is where everybody should go. You want to start a business? Start it in Puerto Rico because you have a competitive advantage against everybody else. And if you succeed, you get to keep your profits. You know, if Eduardo Sovereign, the guy who was one of the co-founders of Facebook, if, if they had started Facebook in Puerto Rico, he wouldn't have had to renounce his U.S. citizenship. He could have kept his U.S. citizenship and his money. So we've got the best of both worlds here. But this guy takes a pot shot at me. He just, you know, is trying to make him look good and further his own political ambitions and try to make it out like, hey, I'm just some wealthy guy who doesn't give a damn about the people in Puerto Rico. He's the guy that doesn't give a damn about the people in Puerto Rico. He just wants to get elected. I'm the one that cares, right? Because I understand that the people are better off as a, as a territory, you know? But no, because he doesn't want to tell the truth. He just wants to get elected, right? He just wants to say things that people want to hear and people think, oh yes, we're poor and we're not a state. Therefore, the reason we're poor is because we're not a state. Look, there's a lot of problems in states. And if Puerto Rico became a state, all we would be is the poorest state in the union with the highest taxes by far. We would have the highest taxes of any state. Why would we want to do that? Why don't we want to preserve the advantage we have right now and be the lowest tax territory rather than the highest tax state? Anyway, so what you should do is on my Twitter, uh, you can you know follow the links to his. And I commented, you can see a few of my comments in there. They're all written in Spanish, right? This whole thing is in Spanish, which I thought was funny because this guy is so into statehood. Why doesn't he tweet in English, right? If he wants Puerto Rico to be a state, then everybody needs to start speaking English instead of Spanish. 
Um, and, you know, there are a lot of things, you know, I said a lot of great things about Puerto Rico on that panel, about the Puerto Rico people, about my experience here, about the hospitality, about how I like the culture, how I like the food, how I like the environment. I mean, I talked up Puerto Rico. I'm an emissary. Probably more people have come to Puerto Rico for these tax incentives directly because of me. A lot of them were because of, you know, I was on the Joe Rogan podcast talking it up. So I've done a lot for Puerto Rico, probably a lot more than this guy. I mean, these politicians, these professional politicians, they're the ones that screwed up Puerto Rico. I mean, the, the, the one thing they did right, the only step in the right direction were these tax incentives that brought me here and thousands of other people here, right? So that's a step in the right direction. Keep doing that. Right. But so you could go to my uh, my Twitter page and find this guy, uh, Pedro's tweet. And you can you can read mine because you can click on Twitter to translate the tweets into English. And so what you might want to do is like some of my responses, maybe uh, respond in your own. And what you could do is you could, you know, go on Google Translate and write your tweet in English and have it uh, translate into Spanish. I mean, that's what I did. It's not like I'm, I'm not fluent in Spanish. So the way I tweeted in Spanish is I went into Google Translate with my English tweet, and then it immediately translates it into Spanish, and then I cut and pasted the Spanish version. Now, maybe there was an easier, maybe you can actually do it directly in Twitter, I don't know, but, but that wasn't that hard to do. Uh, so you can translate it, that, you know, because I wanted to, uh, you know, be courteous and respectful of the fact that the Twitter was in Spanish, and so I conducted all my comments in Spanish as well. Uh, but his whole idea was to make me look bad, right? He wanted to make himself look good by making me look bad and attacking me in a way where I can't even defend myself and, and to explain. And, you know, I'm not the only person in Puerto Rico who's opposed to statehood. There's a lot of people. It's about 50-50. A lot of people don't want to be a state, right? Is it just, are they all just selfish? Are they all just want to deny uh, uh, freedom and opportunity to their fellow Puerto Ricans? No. Right. He's not attacking my ideas. He wants to attack me as a person. I oppose statehood because I'm bad and evil and greedy. That has nothing to do with why I oppose statehood. And, you know, if they want to screw up and become a state, it's not going to hurt me. Right. I've got a tax contract with Puerto Rico that goes to 2035. So Puerto Rico can't tax me. I mean, yes, I'll have to start paying the federal income tax the same way that uh, I was before I came here. But I can afford to pay it. Most people here can't. And of course, I could leave. I could pick up and go someplace else. You know, I mean, I'm not stuck here. I have the resources to live wherever I want. So a lot of people would have to live in a much poorer state of Puerto Rico when they could be living in a very prosperous territory. What Puerto Rico needs to do is shrink government more and more. I mean, I've, I've advocated defaulting on the debt. I don't think the people in the United States who are irresponsible enough to loan the Puerto Ricans so much more money than they should repay, I don't think they should get paid back. And in fact, a lot of those bonds are owned by hedge funds and speculators. Sure, let them lose. I don't care. I care about Puerto Rico. I don't care about speculators that, that, that you know, are trying to make a killing on uh, buying depressed bonds. They took a risk. Let them lose, right? I want to shrink the Puerto Rican government. I want this to be the free market capital of the world. That's what's good for Puerto Rico. You know, what, what does statehood mean? Statehood means we have more government and higher taxes. How is that a recipe for freedom? If I cared about my fellow Puerto Ricans, which I do, why would I want to subject them to even more government and higher taxes? I fled to escape that. Why would I want them to suffer it? No, I want everybody in Puerto Rico to be freer, 
to pay lower taxes, right? And that's what we could achieve as a territory. We have no chance of achieving that as a state, none whatsoever. All of our chances are gone. Our dreams are gone because we'll never get out from under that federal income tax, which is gonna get higher and higher and higher because the country is broke and we're on the verge of electing Sanders president. Why would I want Puerto Rico to become a state in a country where Sanders is the president, right? Take advantage, you know, be careful what you wish for. We have the greatest opportunity in Puerto Rico. And I want Puerto Ricans to seize this opportunity to be like Singapore or like Hong Kong, not like Venezuela.